All right, Southridge, so, so glad that you're here today. This morning is, uh, we are continuing uh, our series, Big Questions. And Pastor Troy, over the last few weeks, done a great job um, answering some tough questions. In fact, um, he kind of joked with me at the beginning that he was going to give me the tough questions and he'd take the easy ones. But actually last week, he took, I believe, the toughest one. And and uh, asking that big question about suffering. Why is there suffering? And uh, why does God allow suffering? Uh, so great, uh, great message last week. And this week, uh, a very unique question, one that um, is kind of challenging. And, and so I really embraced this and, and had a lot of fun researching it and, and just digging in. Uh, the question is, why does God seem so different in the Old Testament versus the new. And I think about this, the New Testament, and I think about really uh, um, when I was a kid growing up, and I remember a time when when uh, the first time I, I saw just a New Testament, because you can actually get just a New Testament, and I thought, oh, wow, this is so cool. And I went to my mom and said, Mom, when did, when did God come out with a new Bible? You know, did he just come out with this? And, and she kind of laughed a little bit. She said, no, actually, this, this has been around for a while. Uh, so, and just to kind of give you a little background, a little foundation, uh, maybe you're here and, and you're just checking things out, checking out this God thing and what does it mean. And um, uh, I want to just give you a little uh, framework here. The Bible is compiled of 66 books, and they were divinely inspired. They were God-breathed uh, through the men uh, that, that wrote these books. Uh, the Bible has two parts. The Old Testament, which is the first 39 books of the Bible originally written in Hebrew. The second part is the New Testament, which is compiled of the remaining 27 books originally written in Greek. Now, we're going to uh, look at our key text, which is the text that we look at each week for uh, uh, this series. And uh, because before we can answer the big question today, we should start by simply asking who God is. We can do that by looking at our key text and a few of the names we find for God in the Old Testament. So, uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, God created everything, including us. He is all-powerful. Because of this, there is no question that is too big for him. So all the questions that were submitted, all the questions uh, that you have, there's nothing that's too big for him. Now, the name we find here in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is Elohim. That's the Hebrew name. Uh, uh, translation of that that name, God. It's used more than 2,500 times in the Old Testament. It was the name used to refer to God, and it's really a little bit more of a title. Now, the other more common name for God that we find uh, in the Old Testament as well is Yahweh, and the original Hebrew text was not vocalized as Yahweh was considered too sacred to pronounce. Instead, the name Adonai, when they would read Yahweh, uh, it was my Lord, Adonai, was substituted in reading. And it's important to kind of note that because that's, that's kind of a piece of what I'm going to be talking about today, about who God is. He is holy. But you know, uh, this is kind of like when God introduced himself to Moses as, as Yahweh, God basically said, Please call me Yahweh. 
The fact that this personal name of Yahweh appears more than 6,800 times in Scripture reminds us of something important about his character. He wants a personal relationship with us. So important for us to realize that this is who God is. He is a God who is interested in a relationship with you and me. Now, even though God expresses this desire throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, the the Old Testament still has a bit of an image problem. And the problem is, is that people think the God of the Old Testament is much different than what we find in the New Testament. You know, Jesus seems... uh, is seen as as a meek and mild, as meek and mild. While God is white haired, big guy, uh, big guy upstairs, uh, packing the thunderbolt in his back pocket. You know, just ready to strike uh, when somebody's out of line. And that's kind of the picture that people have. And in fact, if you've seen the the movie Bruce Almighty with uh, Jim Carrey a few years back, and he you know, got to play God for basically 24 hours. Before that happened, he was, he was kind of screaming at God and about how terrible his life was. And he, and he, you know, reached up to heaven and said, smite me, almighty smiter. And just kind of an interesting uh, uh, interaction there. But one that I think a lot of people, when they look at the Old Testament, that's how they see God. Um, we have a picture here of, of the Far Side cartoon where, Gary Larson, who did the Far Side cartoon for many years, always had lots of pictures of God, and most of the time it was long, long, you know, old guy, long white hair, and here he is at a computer uh, with a keyboard that one of the keys said "Smite," and there's a a guy walking underneath a piano with just hanging by a cord. Here's the reality, though, even though that's kind of the image, the reality is. The way we think about God and his character has a profound effect on our relationship with him. It's really important for us to understand the way we think about God and his character has a profound effect on our relationship with him. So because of this, I kind of want to look at our, our perceptions, how we picture God. Picturing God, first thing, our perceptions about the Old Testament are shaped by time span and memory. Now, this may sound a little curious, but I want you to consider this. First of all, the Old Testament, if you start with Moses and Exodus and move to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, covers a thousand years of history. Now, if you look at the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, that covers less than 50 years. So our perceptions of the Old Testament are really shaped around this idea of, man, all this nasty, crazy, uh, insane stuff happens in the Old Testament. But that's a, there's, there's more than a thousand, but just from Moses to Malachi, that's a thousand years. Whereas the New Testament, we're only having a small sample of time. Also, memory. We tend to remember bad things much better than we remember good things. If I were to, if I were to ask you and say, "Hey, uh, the year two thousand and one, tell me a couple of memories. What what are a few highlights from your life in the year two thousand and one?" Inevitably, almost everyone would would share. I remember where I was on nine eleven. I remember where I was standing when I saw it on the television. I remember where I was when I heard it on the radio. What was happening? So. 
just really important for us to understand uh, with, with regard to picturing God and the Old Testament. The second thing is our perceptions of God will affect our questions about him. Our image of God will directly affect how we either pursue or avoid God. How you see him, how you think about him, it will affect how you pursue or avoid him. Really important for us to understand. The third thing is our perceptions of God will affect our passion for Scripture. Without a passionate desire for knowing God through his word, we will lack a thorough understanding of who he really is. If you have a perception of him as, as uh, this God who is, is vengeful and, and always looking for uh, you to do something wrong so he can punish you, and somehow you have that in your mind about who he is, uh, that will affect your desire to pursue him in Scripture and actually find out who he really is. So it's really important for us to understand these perceptions of God and how it affects our relationship with him. These uh, perceptions can, can lead to strong personal ideas and opinions about who God is. And these mis- misconceptions usually do not align with his actual character. We see this throughout our culture all the time that people who have a perception of God are now in literature and film and television are portraying God in a certain way. And it does not align with his true character. In uh, one of the episodes of The Simpsons, I was reading about that uh, in one of the episodes, Bart is in Sunday school at church, and, and there's just a little fragment of what the Sunday school teacher is teaching, and that fragment is this. And that's why God causes train wrecks. That's what the little lesson segment you get. And that segment is actually... Uh, a perception of God from one of the writers and producers who made The Simpsons, that that is what, that's exactly what they think about who God is, that God just causes terrible things to happen. Where we can learn, though, about the true character and the true image of who God is, is through a thorough reading of both the Old Testament and New Testament. That's why we have them both. That's why God's left the Old Testament and New Testament for us. So we can have a deep, thorough understanding of who he is and the relationship he wants to have with us. Because God is not just a New Testament God. We need both the Old Testament and New Testament. Here's a few reasons why God is not just a New Testament God. First of all, the Old Testament is foundational to the New have you ever arrived halfway through a movie or, you know, 20 minutes in? Have you ever arrived, you know, at act two of a two-act play, you know, and you feel like you're a little bit lost and you're, you're asking, the, trying to, hopefully you have someone there you know, you can say, hey, what's going on? I don't really quite know everything, the whole story here. The Old Testament is part one of a two-act play. The Old Testament shows us three very important things. First of all, how incapable we are of saving ourselves. Also, how miserable we are apart from God. And also, how desperately we need Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament shows us through that, what we read about the journey of the Israelites and their relationship with God and his relationship with them. 
The second uh, reason why uh, it's not just a new, we, we don't have just a New Testament God is that the Bible of Jesus was the Old Testament. We sometimes forget this when we're reading about Jesus and his life and his teachings, but his time on earth, his, when he was reading scripture, he was reading out of the Old Testament. Jesus coming to earth, in fact, was the fulfillment of 332 prophecies from the Old Testament. And get this, he quoted the Old Testament 78 times. And when you go into the letters of Paul and the rest of the New Testament, there's quotations from the Old Testament even more than that. So the Bible of Jesus was the Old Testament. The third reason uh, God is not just a New Testament God is this. God is unchanging from the Old Testament to the New. In Malachi 3.6, I love this verse. It says, I am the Lord and I do not change. This is so true about the character of God. When you're reading the Old Testament, if you're only reading snippets of it, and you come across passages of making you think, this seems like it's, he's so different than Jesus. It's, it's just not who I thought God was. The reality is you need to dig deep, deeper because what, what it says in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord and I do not change. And what we find in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is so true about his character. Now, with all this in mind, the question remains, why does the Old Testament seem so different? In particular, many of you ask this question, why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? What's the deal with all the anger what does this mean? You know, I thought the best way to answer this is by examining a passage where God was angry in the Old Testament and go from there. An actual case study is what we're going to look at. So we're going to read an account from, the, from 2 Samuel 6. It's also found in 1 Chronicles 13, which is important to note that the Old Testament is not linear history when you read Genesis to Malachi. Some of these books and these, prophet, these, these books about prophets um, are overlapping into other books. So that's what you have here in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles 13. David, of David and Goliath, is the new king of Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant, okay, the Ark of the Covenant, if you watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, this Ark is the symbol of God's presence with Israel. Uh, and this symbol is making its return to Israel after it had been taken by a neighboring country, the Philistines, okay? So we're going to answer this question, why is God so angry, by looking at 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 7. Here we go. It says this, Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Balah of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the cart, David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. 
But when they arrived at the threshing floor, this is the part of the story that you know, just like if you were watching a movie, like, I think something bad might be happening here. It just seems like something's changing. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzal reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. Now, when you read a passage like this, you know, this is kind of one of those that you... You, you cringe a little bit and you wonder, what is going on with this? What is up with that? Why would God do this? And maybe as I'm reading this, you're wondering and you're thinking, man, this is the reason why I struggle with the Old Testament. Stories like this. I, I, I scratch my head and why would God just kill this guy? Why? You know, uh, I, I think about this and I, after I read this, I thought this is like that scene and, you know, a modern day scene where kids are having a party and, and and mom and dad come home and they they bump the stereo and turn it off and everybody's go home the party's over you know the party kind of just died right here so uh you know when i look at this story that's probably some of that those first thoughts this is messed up so i want to highlight a few things first and then we're going to walk through why God was angry, because he actually had some really good reasons for being angry. So first, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is a symbol of God's power and presence, and the covenant, or this special, unique relationship between God and his people. The power of this symbol was so great that God had rules for not ever touching it, and that only priests could carry it and could only carry it in a certain way. If you look at this picture, this picture is from actually from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which actually the representation of the Ark of the Covenant in that movie is actually quite good. And you'll see that there's these little rings on the side and, it, and that's exactly how the Ark was made. And so these rings are there for a purpose. It actually signifies this is how you're supposed to carry it. You're supposed to run these poles through it and only certain people can carry it and they're not to touch it. Okay, so, uh, you know, there's this, this is very important for us to understand. Now, the reason for these rules is that God had to create a distinct line between his holiness and man's imperfection, his sinfulness. These rules for the ark and for other things, this is to create this line between what was holy and what was imperfect or sinful or profane. So this was to this is this was uh, to help people understand who God is and that He is holy. He is holy. He is perfect. That's who He is. Now, another word, a word I want to just point out because I think you can read this story and miss this word and its importance is the word all. It happens twice here in the English, but it's actually three times in the Hebrew that this all appears in this story. What we need to understand is this. Everyone was watching this happen. I don't know how or what, but everyone was there to witness it in some way, shape, or form. All of the, all of the soldiers, all of the people were present for this party. It wasn't just a punishment for Uzzah. 
God was trying to get the attention of the Israelites. You know, I was thinking about this um, and thought about my daughter who's five years old. She's in kindergarten and uh, I, I often ask her, you know, the kids get in the car when I pick them up on Mondays or Tuesdays and get them, you know, I'm taking them home and I ask, hey, what happened today? I usually start by saying, hey, what did you learn? And uh, that's when I uh, often get that, that lovely answer, which is nothing. So I, I often, <laughs> I, I will often uh, threaten to take them back uh, so they can learn something, but I haven't followed through on that, but um, I was talking to my daughter about her teacher, and she really thinks highly of her teacher, likes her teacher a lot, and we were talking about her. She'll even tell me, you know, she was sick today or she wasn't feeling good, and, and so just very in tune with what's happening with her teacher, and um, one day she, here recently, actually it was last week, and she said, you know, Dad, sometimes she's kind of rough on us. And I was like, what? Uh, yeah, she's kind of rough on us. And I was like, okay, what, is that, what does that look like? And she, she said, uh, well, sometimes she yells really, really, really loud, and it hurts our ears. And, and it's just, it's terrible. It's awful. And, and I said, you know what? It's, it's possible. It's possible she does that to get your attention because all you kids aren't listening. You know, and I know there's 22, 23 kids in there. And I said, you know, if you're all not listening and you're not doing what you're supposed to, she has to some way get your attention. This is what's happening here in this story. God is getting everyone's attention. My question uh, that I think it's important to ask right now is this. What's God trying to get your attention about? What is it in your life that God is trying to get your attention? Maybe it's you continually go through some struggles and you feel like, man, it's never, there's always something that's, that's knocking me back a little bit. Is it possible tr- God is trying to get your attention about something in your life that doesn't belong? Is it something in a relationship? Is it something in your workplace? Is it something in your family or marriage, something that doesn't belong. He's trying to get your attention. That's what's happening in this story. And that's, that's why you know, God is getting their attention because he's angry about some things and not just one thing. So let's see what God was angry about and why he was getting their attention. First of all, first reason is this, King David blew it. He blew it by seeking others instead of God. And First Chronicles 13, it's really good if you have the opportunity in, in the Old Testament and New Testament, there's, there's times when a story is told more than once. And by doing that, by reading the different accounts and how they were written, you find other details. One of the details is in First Chronicles 13.1, that story, that account of what we just read, Starts off with this. David consulted with all his officials, including the generals and captains of his army. Now that sound that may sound like a good idea, but the reality is he didn't need to consult anybody about doing what he did and how he did it. There were already regulations on 
uh, how to carry the ark and how and who could be around it. And he didn't need to consult them. Not only that, we find out if you look at 2 Samuel 5, we're told early on as a king, David inquired of the Lord. Here, instead of inquiring of the Lord of what to do, the ark is back. How do we, how do we uh, present it to everyone? How do we carry it? What should I do in this situation? He goes to people, these captains, generals, his officials, and he got bad advice because they all signed off on this. Okay, so you know the modern day equivalent of that is is if if me being executive pastor and and you know Troy's gone and can't really talk to him and and instead of talking to him or spending time in prayer over a difficult decision, I just decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to go down the street to Taco Bell and, and I'm going to talk to somebody behind the counter and ask them what do you guys think we should do about this over at Southridge Church this tough decision. That sounds pretty silly. That sounds kind of ridiculous. But, you know, this is what's happening here where, you know, David is, he blew it by seeking others instead of God. In our everyday life, this happens all the time where we have a big decision. We have a crucial decision, decision something that, that we need advice on. And what do I do? And we decide, hey, you know, let's 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 pick up one of Oprah's books and and let's let's let, let's see what Oprah thinks on this. Which, by the way, I've never done that. I've never I've never uh, looked into uh, what Oprah thinks on something. Or maybe we just say, hey, you know, I'm going to phone a friend. I'm going to ask a friend and see what they think. You know, I'm going to throw it up on Facebook. I'll say, hey, what do you think I should do about this problem? When what we should be doing at the very beginning, what we should be doing first is asking God, God, would you guide me? Would you direct me in this? So my question, one of my, another question I have for you today is this, who or where do you go for advice first? Who do you go first? Do you go to, to a friend? Do you go to other means of, of advice? Or do you spend some time in prayer? Do you spend some time reading God's word to say, hey, you know, I want to go to the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth because he wants to have a relationship with me and he wants to guide me through difficult decisions. The second reason why God was, the second thing that God was angry about is this. David and the Israelites followed the pattern of the world instead of obeying the instructions given by God. And first, uh, uh, in, in this scripture that we read, we find out that in first in Second Samuel six that they placed the ark of God on a new cart. Which at first glance that sounds like, man, that's a great idea. Let's let's put the ark of God on a new cart. Man, that sounds nice. The problem is is that that exact method of transporting the ark was the same way that the Philistines transported it, and they transported their holy objects or symbols. So what they did was they copied one of the people groups around them and how they did things. 
Romans 12, 2 tells us, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God cannot bless the patterns of this world. God's work, your life must be done in God's way if it's to have God's blessing. Your marriage, your, the start of a marriage, the start of a relationship when you are engaged with someone and, and the decisions you make in moving forward in that relationship, deciding whether or not uh, you should live together before marriage, uh, you know, making decisions on your finances, whether you decide to cut corners in your finances, uh, and whether you decide, hey, maybe I'll just go into debt just like everybody else. And I'll see how that works because everybody else is in debt, so maybe that's what I should do. Copying the patterns of the world. I see how that person is getting ahead and moving up the ladder in in my business, and I know and I know that I know that that's probably not the best way, but you know what? Everybody else is doing it. Don't copy those around you, the patterns of the world. Is there a way that you're doing this? Is there something in your life that you're copying the patterns of the world? And so God can't bless that relationship. God can't bless your workplace and and your career because you're continuing to copy the patterns of the world instead of the principles that you find in Scripture. The third reason why God was angry is this. Uzzah neglected God's warning about touching the Ark of the Covenant. Numbers 4.15 says, you must not touch the holy things or they will die. They must not touch the holy things or they will die. God was very clear. And you know what? Uzzah probably meant well by steadying the ark, by being right there in case it falls off this new cart that it shouldn't be on. But you know what? We don't even know if he was a priest that could even be standing there and helping carrying that. He put himself... in a position of great risk. That's the reality. He may have meant well, but he put himself in a position of great risk. Is it possible that you're putting yourself in a position of great risk? Are you putting yourself in a position of great risk in your marriage by connecting with someone at work in in a little bit more than just a work relationship? Are you connecting with a a uh, long-lost classmate? Are you putting yourself in a position of great risk? Are you putting yourself in that kind of position? You know, God is wanting uh, to protect us, and he's laid these things out just as he had for the ark and how it should be transported and who should be around it. And they knew the risks, and yet they put themselves in a position. And Uzzah paid that penalty of death because he put himself in that kind of position. What kind of position are you putting yourself in? The last thing that I want to outline for you that that God was angry about is God was angry with the Israelites because of their lack of concern for the relationship with him. All of what was happening with the ark and what had happened before 
was a symptom of this big problem. God was angry because of their lack of concern for their relationship with him. In Exodus 25, 22, God said with regard to the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you there. They had lost the Ark. Here they have it back. They, they, lost, they lost the Ark and even what it represented, which was this beautiful and, and, and significant relationship where God said, I, you will be my people and I will be your God. But even after they lost it, instead of having it carried exactly as God had asked and laid out for them, they put it on a cart. This was so disrespectful. If you can imagine just in kind of just to bring it home a little bit in our, and just give you a picture. If, if, if God said to us, hey, here's this ark and I only want it to be, to be uh, uh, towed by a, a Cadillac. And that's how you're to transport it. And we decided, hey, you know what? I'm gonna, we're going to take this, this ark and we're just going to put it in the trunk of a Yugo. All right? And I know some of you, are, uh, how many of you remember a Yugo, what that was? Okay. Uh, so you have to Google a Yugo. Basically, a Yugo was a car that was just like kind of a glorified um, golf cart. Um, you know, it's, it's, it was about that sturdy and just a little bit bigger and just didn't last long, not very reliable. Every one of them was a lemon. But if you can just picture that, it was that disrespectful. That's what was happening here. They had such a lack of concern, the Israelites did, for their relationship with God. And God saw it and it, was ang- it, it, it angered him. Why? Because he loved them and wanted that relationship. Could you imagine, I want to just, uh, just before I wrap up here, <clears throat> could you imagine as the ark is, is this symbol of this relationship, we have those kinds of symbols um, in, in, in relationships as well. The things that symbolize our love for one another, let's say in marriage. So if you could imagine me just uh, after after church, going to Applebee's and, and you know, have a, have a good meal and love the service and just decide, hey, you know what? I really want to bless this, this waitress. And you know what? I'm going to just take this wedding ring of mine and I'm going to leave this as a tip, you know? You know, right there in front of my wife, hey, you know what? Let's, let's really bless her, you know? That sounds, that sounds ridiculous, but, you know, could you imagine me being that careless could you imagine if I decided, hey, you know, uh, your, your, your wedding gown and your shoes and all those things that you kept, I just, I just went ahead and threw that in a box and put it in with the kids' play things because, you know, the dress-up things for, for, for our daughter who likes to dress up and do things like that. Could you imagine if I took the nice wedding platter and everything in our china cabinet and took it out and just decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to put that out and, uh, for, for nacho night for, you know, or for guys night for nachos, you know. That actually sounds kind of good. So could you imagine being that disrespectful? See, what you see as anger is actually God demonstrating how serious he is about a relationship with you. He is passionate. He is serious about you. And I just want to just quickly outline what that means. As I mentioned before, God is serious about his relationship with us. He's serious enough that he sent his son to die for you. 
This is the new covenant. The Old Testament is the story of the old covenant. This is the new covenant. In Hebrews 9, 15, it says, that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. He is serious about a relationship with us. Second, uh, he is serious about our protection. He wants he lays these things out, the commandments, and maybe you read these things and you think, man, God is, God is always, you know, this killjoy. He doesn't want me to have fun, but actually he wants you to obey him because those things he's asking of you is because he's a holy God and he's asking of you to stay pure, to stay sinless. Even though we are always messing up, he wants us to make that effort to have that relationship and be as close to us as possible. He wants our obedience so he can protect us. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the last thing he's most serious about, um, just three things that he's most serious about, I believe, is unwavering loyalty. One of the times that Jesus quoted the Old Testament in Matthew Twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. There's that word again, all. That's what he asks of us, all. That you would love him with all that you are, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Are you willing to give him all of your life, all of your love? Because he gave, he is so serious about you that he gave his only son, so that you could have a relationship with him and spend eternity with him. You know, as I, as I wrap things up here, I just another question. Have you ever been, uh, I was thinking about this relationship that, uh, that we see in the Old Testament, and it seems different because it tells the story of a one-sided relationship. Have you ever been in a one-sided relationship? Where, where you feel like, hey, I'm the one doing all the work here. I'm the one calling, and I'm the one making the, the dinner plans, and I'm the one uh, really serious about this relationship. And the other person was just like, oh, okay, you know, just kind of hanging out. And you're really serious. That's what we find in the Old Testament. It's the story of a one-sided relationship where God is more committed and, frankly, more serious to his people than his people were to him. God was passionate about the Israelites, but the Israelites were constantly careless, neglectful, and honestly, they just weren't serious about their relationship with God. Time and time again, we see and we read about the Israelites and the foolishness and their, their, how could they do such silly and stupid things? How could they do that over and over? And the story of the Israelites, though, as we look at it and we shake our heads and we scratch our heads and we wonder, the story of the Israelites is the story of us. Over and over again, that we become careless and we are not as serious about our relationship with God as he is about us. As we look in the Old Testament, we will find about 10 or 11 times this phrase about describing who God is. In Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We find this, this description of who God is in the book of Jonah after Jonah goes 
uh, runs from God and doesn't want to tell the Ninevites about this message of warning that you have 30 days, you have to turn everything around or you will be destroyed. And he didn't want to go. And this story about uh, Jonah running from God and then being swallowed by a big fish, spit up on land, and he decides, okay, I'll finally go. He goes, he tells the message, and within three days, everyone has turned around. The king has called everybody to say, get on your knees and, and repent. And when Jonah sees what happens and, and hears from God that God is not going to destroy them, Jonah wanted them destroyed. And his response to God is, he complained to the Lord. He said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? This is why I ran away. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah, Nehemiah, David, Moses, the people in the Old Testament that we come across that have such deep relationship with God, they knew him not as an angry God, but as a God who's slow to anger, as a God who's merciful and gracious, who is abounding in steadfast love. He's the same God that we find the same God that they knew and knew well and describe as such as the same God who sent his son to die for us and is still at this very time, this very day, serious about a relationship with you. He wants to have that relationship. He wants to have that relationship with you today. And whether, he has a relation, whether you have a relationship with him or you need to start one today, or maybe you're here today and he's just trying to get your attention. It's because he's serious about, who, about a relationship with you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each and every person here, for the plan that you have for them, the great love that you have for them, the fact that you're serious about them. You're serious about having a relationship with them. And that relationship means that if right now at this moment they want to have a relationship with you, they step into that relationship by simply confessing with their mouth and their heart that you are Lord, that you, Jesus, died for their sins, saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead, defeating death. I believe in these things and I believe you're the son of God and that you can change my life. Change me, transform me. I want to follow you for the rest of my days. Forgive me of my sins. If that's you, I just want to know just by raising up your hand and saying, that's me. I made that commitment maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. Yes. If you're here today and you feel like, man, God, I believe God is trying to get my attention. I believe God is challenging me on a few things that maybe I've been careless about. And maybe I'm, I'm going to all these other people for advice. And you need wisdom from God and you want to change that pattern. You are copying the behaviors and the patterns of this world. You're putting yourself at great risk and you want it to change beginning today. You need the strength to make the right choices. You need the 
power of the Holy Spirit to guide you through what needs to happen. If that's you, just raise up your hands. Yes, hands all over. God, I thank you that you're that serious about us, that you love us, that you would get, get our attention, that you do everything you can to keep us close to you, that you desire a relationship with us. We thank you that you are slow to anger, abounding in love, compassionate and gracious. Give us strength to make the right decisions. Guide us through these these challenging uh, situations that you want to be a bigger part of our life. We thank you, God, for who you are. In Jesus' name.